The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The cross-examination. There has been an increasing body of scientific research which is linking more minor exposures or infrequent exposures to concussions to an increased risk of dementia in the long term. What is different about the way that the professional game is played now is that the players, because of um, you know sports nutrition, sports science and training, they're bigger, faster, stronger than they ever have been. So the impacts upon collisions are huge. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. Back in December 2020, Steve Thompson, a former Rugby World Cup winner, joined a number of his ex-colleagues to bring legal proceedings against the Rugby Football Union in England and the Welsh Rugby Union. These players are all suffering from early onset dementia, a progressive and ultimately debilitating condition. And what was once known mostly as a problem for the NFL in the US has sharply become an issue across the sporting world. In this episode, we're going to look at the medical condition in more detail, we're going to look at where it comes from, and we're going to discuss the complexities of blame. Who holds the duty of care to Steve Thompson and his former colleagues? If anyone. The Cross-Examination Hello Katie and hello Sophie. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show to talk to me today about sports injuries. I'm really keen to learn some more about what's going on here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Um, I'm Sophie Beasley. I'm a barrister at Old Square Chambers. I've been there for about 10 years now, and my practice is exclusively in medical negligence and personal injury claims. And I deal with those in the civil courts in relation to damages claims, um, but also in coroner's court in relation to investigations as to how somebody has come by their death. I generally represent claimants. Um, but do some defendant work too to give me a bit of a balanced uh, approach on these issues. Thanks, Becky. Um, my name's Katie Fudakowski. I'm a barrister. I practice for 10 years from Old Square Chambers, where Sophie um, is from. Uh, I specialised in employment law and then increasingly safeguarding and education law. And I'm now uh, a partner at Farrah's and we um, are a London law firm and we have a specialist safeguarding unit at Farrah's, um, which um, specialises in safeguarding children and adults who fulfil the definition of adults at risk. And when we use the term safeguarding, we mean that in the widest sense, so not just ensuring compliance with the duty to refer to statutory agencies, but um, to create safer cultures and safer practices um, whereby uh, beneficiaries and staff are protected from harm, uh, which includes, of course, physical harm. So it's through that particular lens that I approach the topic of head injuries in contact sports. I just wondered if you could just frame it for me. What are the particular injuries we're talking about? Where are these cases coming from? We're talking about uh, risk of concussion in very simple terms. So concussion is uh, an injury that happens because the brain is soft. In very simple terms, it's protected in the skull within fluid and it floats around. 
but if you have a fall or a collision, it can cause the brain to move around uh, rapidly, kind of backwards and forwards. It can bang against the skull. Um, that can cause it to bruise or to tear blood vessels. And that's, uh, that's an injury known as a concussion, a temporary loss of normal brain function. And I think we're all quite familiar with those sorts of symptoms. So headache, nausea, vomiting, and so on. And a single concussion, historically, uh, we've known the symptoms of that to resolve over days or weeks. Also in this uh, conversation and around this topic, we also talk quite a lot about a condition called CTE. And CTE is a condition caused by multiple concussions over a lifetime, which result in structural changes in the brain. Um, CTE is a bit different, obviously, because it has a higher threshold in terms of exposure to multiple more minor injuries. But symptoms of CTE um, have, tend to be those similar to other degenerative brain conditions like Alzheimer's disease, for example, uh, builds up over time. And you uh, see people with issues such as slurred speech, difficulty thinking, confusion, changes in mood, that sort of stuff. And why this topic, I think, is being talked about more now is because of, over the last kind of three to five years, uh, particularly, there has been an increasing body of scientific research, which is linking more minor exposures or infrequent exposures to concussions to an increased risk of dementia in the long term. So whereas before people thought the trauma had to be quite bad to have that dementia risk, there is uh, research now that suggests actually the concussions don't have to be very serious. And there's a few particular studies which have given some quite alarming statistics, uh, which have prompted this uh, big debate about contact sports. Uh, Katie, I don't know if you want to come in at that point to talk about the test case uh, and so on. Yeah, so thanks, Sophie. So I think the thing that perhaps will have um, come across people's radar, what they will have read about in the mainstream news, is um, the test case. The, the news broke about this in December 2020. And this is Steve Thompson um, and seven other former professional rugby players, all under the age of 45, who've bought, who are bringing, have brought a class action against um, three defendants, World Rugby, the RFU and Welsh Rugby, for what they allege was a failure by those bodies to protect them from the risks caused by concussion. Um, so there's that um, test case, which um, is progressing. Most people think it's pretty like well very likely that that litigation will be settled because plainly it's not going to be palatable to have very popular former players up on the steps of court talk, you know talking about their their injuries um and it, so it's most likely that that litigation will be settled so we won't get any kind of uh, helpful legal findings the mm. parallel litigation which happened in the US around American football etc and the NFU that's all bit that was all settled so you've got a test case you've also got a lot of high profile people speaking openly about this issue. Um, I mean, 2017 had Alan Shearer, former footballer, talking about the links between football and dementia. Um, also, female athletes, for example, Nicola White, Olympic champion, uh, won gold in Rio 2016 and bronze at London 2012. She um, suffered a concussion during a training match, actually, or a friendly game against Ireland, she has had to be withdrawn from the GB hockey programme. She's spoken very openly about um, the impact of concussion on her career. And then um, 
you've also got the the government have set up a parliamentary inquiry called Concussion in Sport. Uh, mm. It launched in March. It's chaired by Julian Knight MP, and that's going to examine the links between sport and long term brain injury. It's going to hear sort of evidence. Well, it has been hearing evidence, and the committee will look at that evidence on the implications for youth sport. Uh, scientific research, the role of national governing bodies and major sporting organisations. Um, so we'll, we have to watch this space for what um, is published uh, as a result of that inquiry. Fascinating. How, how widespread of a problem is this? I mean, you've mentioned uh, three or four different types of sport there. Um, how many people are maybe affected by this? It's an interesting question because um, we ask this question quite a lot in the context of, for example, schools playing different uh, sports and where does this apply, where does this not apply? And I think the issue is that the risk is associated to the injury, not to a particular sport. And obviously concussions in terms of collisions uh, or falls are more likely uh, in some sports than others, and those will be the greatest risk. But in terms of how widespread it is, I think this is the question that is concerning a lot of people at the moment, because the research has suggested that the exposure level, for want of a better phrase, that might put you at increased risk is so low. So to give you an example of one of the studies that people talk about, uh, there was a study published in The Lancet in April 2018, and it was the largest uh, of its kind to look at the link between dementia risk and traumatic brain injury, TBI. And the Danish and American researchers concluded that a younger person is at the time of the injury uh, the greater their risk of developing Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. And their analysis of health records looked at 2.8 million people aged over 36 years and showed that the risk of developing dementia over the following 30 years was 63% higher for individuals who had a TBI in their 20s compared to those who had no such injury. Um, the dementia risk also increased with the number and severity of the TBIs sustained. So just one mild TBI was linked with a 17% greater risk of dementia. Um, a person who had sustained five or more uh, TBIs, the risk rose by 200%. Now, obviously, those statistics need putting in context of the individual uh, research and what their baselines were and their populations and so on. But I think even just as a takeaway message in terms of trends, that level of statistic and the trend of statistic with increased uh, recurrence of quite a minor injury is what makes it very difficult to narrow down when this could be a risk, because the answer could be, and the situation is constantly evolving, that this is a very wide uh, spread risk of a problem, mm. albeit mm. it won't materialise for everybody. Yeah, and just to add one point to that, um, Sophie talked about CTE, which of course has been found, it can only be diagnosed conclusively on post-mortem, um, but it, right. and it has been found in the brains of um, American footballers, for example, um, footballers, rugby players, but also, interestingly, in the brains of um, victims of domestic violence, of circus performers. So we're talking about um, sub-concussions, mild concussions happening, not just within sport, but of course, sport is where your risk of sustaining such concussion increases. 
I'm increasingly interested as you're talking about how we draw duty of care responsibilities around this. Um, what are the duties of care that the governing bodies, or I suppose it's not just the governing bodies, is it? Because each of these particularly teams competing at this, the sort of level of the NFL or uh, rugby union, they're going to have team doctors, aren't they? Um, what sort of duty of care do the doctors of those teams and the governing bodies and the institutions have in relation to the players? Is it is it maybe a bit trite and boring to talk about? Well, I mean, obviously, to succeed in an action for negligence at common law, it's necessary for a claimant to establish four things. So first of all, you've got to establish that the defendant owed a duty to the claimant. Secondly, that um, defendant has to breach the duty. Thirdly, um, the breach of duty has to cause the claimant loss. And finally, the that loss needs to be recoverable. So there are obviously kind of a number of elements to satisfy in any in any claim. Um, not and the, the duty question is is one of them, not not the only. I mean, if we look at if we perhaps consider that question in the context of the test case that we've been talking about, um, what is the standard of care that was owed by those defendants? Now um, the standard of rugby's protocols may be far better now than they were 20 years ago. Um, and the standard of care that a court looks at is what is applied at the time. Uh, mm. So, the, you know, whatever the time when Thompson and the others played, not of today. So the law of negligence is about foresight, not hindsight. You are looking at the standard of care that applies, you know, at the time. I think the point that you made, Becky, at the beginning is um, an interesting one in terms of uh, different organisations might end up being defendants in these types of cases. So you've got governing bodies at a local level, at a national level, at an international level, quite where courts uh, draw the line in terms of where those organisations, if those organisations have a duty of care to individual players, is not yet quite known. And then as uh, you've got organisations who are then running the matches, uh, you've got schools, for example, playing sports, plus this wider context that we could be talking about, as Katie said, of generally um injuries, employers, and so on. So I think it's a hard question to answer because the potential sphere is so wide. But as Katie said, in general terms, if a duty of care is established, what you're looking for is the exercise of reasonable care on the information available at the time. So for a lot of people, that will come down to risk assessment and being able to evidence risk assessment and weighing up of information as it evolves over time to make decisions about guidance or to make decisions about offerings of sports or whatever it might be um, and to be able to show that that knowledge is evolving and those decisions are evolving uh, as key decisions are changing with different federations and so on. I was reading an article um, earlier today uh, on football head injuries um, from henning the ball too much mm, yeah. um, and in this article it said that the they had started looking at the question of whether heading the ball could cause brain damage and injuries in the 1970s. And I suppose my question is, if people have been looking at this question since the 1970s, why is it you think that we're only getting cases in the 2020s? Well, perhaps I can start and Sophie can answer. I think, I mean, excuse the pun, 
when we're talking about this issue, I do kind of think it's a bit of a no brainer in the sense of, oh, we're suddenly realising whacking the head against balls or whacking the head against other people's heads or shoulders in scrums is not good for the head. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's, it's so obvious that it's, um, it's very surprising that it has not been front and centre of the debate until relatively recently. Um, I mean, interestingly, with the FA guidance on heading the ball, um, and of course, you know, there is no heading allowed now under 12, and it's a sort of graduated um, uh, amount of heading allowed beyond that. I mean, F the FA did looked at its own research um, and have de and decided to introduce that um, based on um, uh, they wanted to mitigate against any potential risks. The updated um, that's why they introduced the updated heading guidance. So um, mm. even I think the FA is perhaps in the ways it's, it's expressing its, its approach, um, talking about wanting to mitigate any potential risks rather than perhaps. Um, totally accepting what they are um but going back to your question of why aren't we why are we only now seeing claims i think that probably goes back to the science i mean there has obviously been earlier claims brought in the in america um uh, under sort of against some um, american football um bodies etc the uk is catching up but i think it probably has to do with our greater understanding and recognition of brain injury is that right sophie I'd agree with that. I mean, you never know the answer uh, completely. But as I tell many of my clients, I think in the cases, there's a difference between what we may know to be true and what we can prove. Um, mm. And I think that proof um, is certainly not completely there yet in a uh, coherent fashion. But certainly there's an increasing build of evidence, both of people being poorly some years after having played uh, the sports at the centre of the this debate, but also the medical science uh, suggesting that actually they didn't need that biggest, uh, the biggest exposure to get uh, the risk in the first place. And so the questions start being asked about, well, hold on, who knew what, when, and did you take um, reasonable precautions based on the knowledge at the time? Um, and I think that that sort of clash between um, evidence of claimants, evidence of science, but also culture in terms of uh, these sports, both within our sort of country's uh, culture, but also, for example, our school's culture and so on, uh, means that these are quite difficult um, decisions to make uh, and trends to pull. And so I think it's, yeah, it's sort of all coming to the fore at this point now. I think at one point, just to add to that, in terms of um, sort of exposure of this issue, I mean, all credit to, you know, Steve Thompson and the other people behind that test litigation, they're, they're brave to come forward and to, and to be honest about the symptoms that they, they're suffering, mm. because they're not, they're not, they're not nice conditions that they're living with, it has horrible impact on them and their families. And I guess we are seeing like just a cultural shift, aren't we, towards people being more honest about mental health, <laughs> brain mm. health, you know, symptoms that you are um, suffering and people who have been even professional sports people are being more honest about the impact that that career has had upon them. I was doing some reading um, around this before we had our discussion today and one of the things that came through to me um, particularly in Steve Thompson's own words actually um, was that he I think that he mentioned in one of his interviews how particularly in rugby, a more violent game with more clashes is more exciting to watch. Mm. And there is this kind of sort of slight sense of a feedback that the 
the more dangerous it is and the more um, likely it is that it's going to cause people injuries, um, not just brain injuries, but, you know, other injuries as well, is making for better ratings and better television and more money and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that there, are, that there is sort of some truth around that or some links around that? Well, I do. I mean, I can't, I can't on all, in all honesty say that I watch a huge amount of rugby myself, although I have, but I, I understand from people who love the game that they do love watching, you know, the big tackles, the big clashes. They can be as, as exciting as the tries. I guess what is different about the way that the professional game is played now is that the players, because of, um, you know, sports nutrition, sports science and training, they're bigger, faster, stronger than they ever have been. So the impacts um, upon collisions are huge. I mean, I was listening to an interview with Dr. Emma Kirk, who I think practices in, um, runs her own clinic and practices in this area. She likened the forces that professional rugby players are experiencing on the pitch as like akin to having a 40 mile an hour crash in a car. And oh, that wow. they're having, you're having sort of, you know, multiple um, crashes <laughs> per, per match. So I suppose this leads on to the natural question of what can and should the institutions be doing to tackle this problem? I mean, these are, although they are players in a game which is there for our entertainment, they're also human beings who shouldn't be being asked to put their sort of, I don't know, what, 20 to 40 years of their health on, future health on the line when they're only very young. One thing that we have talked about in the context of um, schools having to consider this issue um, and how they operate their sports curriculums is the importance of schools getting informed consent to participate from um, pupils, uh, be that via their parents before the child is Gillick competent. And once the child is achieves Gillick competence around the age of 13, the child themselves is able to consent to play the, to play sports and the, the child and the parents, uh, you know, are um, given enough information to be able to make an informed decision. And I think I think that's that leads into the point you're saying. I mean, you know, professional, well, you know, rugby players, sports players who love the game, they want to play. They're going to be very motivated to play, perhaps even to get back on the pitch when they, you know, actually have suffered a concussion and need to not return yet. Um, we have to, I think, be honest with those players about um, the decisions they make now and how that could impact upon their the health of their brain and their ultimate health in the future um and it's about i think reflecting the best evidence we have of of what those risks are and being being honest about them i think that's right and i think it's also going to change over time as uh, things become more known so i think it will be particularly interesting to see um what the new committee uh, reports in terms of their findings of the review of the state of knowledge at the time. Because I think where we stand at the moment with people saying a lot more research is needed and so on and so forth, 
that's different uh, as to uh, a position we might get to in due course where things are more certainly known and perhaps broader decisions have to be taken about games generally or where where the benefit uh, risk balance lies. But as Katie said, I think generally at the moment, it's another trend that I think affects a lot of areas of our life. But informed consent is something which we're rightly very focused on, whether it's in our medical care or whether it's in the sports that we play or the jobs that we do and the risks we're exposed to. It's about people having that choice to have the information before them to allow them to make uh, the best decisions that they can that are right for them in the moment. And I think that's where we're at at the moment is about providing the information, doing what uh, people making their own decisions and then the guidance being about minimising the risk so far as we can and is known uh, on the information at the time now, but also about uh, management as well as prevention and ensuring that uh, um, when injuries are incurred, that they're managed in the most responsible way to prevent long-term harm. So I think there's a number of different elements of it. Um, but I think I, I do generally feel, and I think much as Katie has said, that our just standards around this are increasing over time in terms of what we expect for ourselves and others. Mm. One extra thing on the consent issue without wanting to segue into a completely different uh, topic, but, which is, which is a, it's itself you know, worthy of many podcasts. But there's in, there has been interesting litigation in the area of um, transgender children. Um, you might have heard of the Bell and Tavistock case and another one that followed it, um, looking at this issue of what can children consent to? What do they actually understand about um, the impact of decisions they make? So um, anyway, I think it's a parallel bit of um, uh, litigation there. Um, but as Sophie rightly says, much greater awareness now about informed consent. So I suppose my next question is, so we've got informed consent, but is there anything the institutions or the doctors or um, the owners of clubs can be doing to put in place um, policies that say you won't do X in training or do you know what I mean? Are, are there kind of, I mean, I used to work in the construction industry where health and safety was paramount, but also health and safety guidelines and policies and regulations were very, very common. You know, we had our working at heights guidelines and policy and to prevent injuries in the first place. Are there these sort of protocols um, for rugby and football and, and similar, or are they still developing those based on the science? There are. <laughs> so, uh, these two, uh, these two are evolving too, but, uh, we keep coming back to schools because it's an area of work that Katie and I do a lot of. But for example, the FA has put guidance out um, in terms of children and when they should or shouldn't head a ball, for example, during training um, and at different age ranges. Uh, we're seeing evidence of schools making decisions, taking contact rugby off their curriculums in favour of touch rugby because they're making the uh, decisions that actually in their own personal assessment of the risks, it's not worth it in terms of offering that sport on the curriculum. So there is uh, definitely guidance coming out, which is based on age, based on particular elements of the sport that you can perhaps do away with, particularly in a training environment and save for games. Um, another example is about uh, decisions to use softballs rather than hardballs when you're training. Um, 
so that again to minimize the risk when you don't need uh, the full game being played per se and so yes I think is the short answer to the question there is a lot of work being done and you can see it being done in terms of the institutions and their updating guidance about how to manage this risk and to, about also how to manage the injuries uh, and lots of guidance to uh, local schools, bodies, uh, local clubs and so on about um, training awareness, um, how to manage people when they have injuries, concussion and so on. Yeah. And just one thing to add, um, I should have mentioned this when we were talking about the test case, but alongside their litigation, Steve Thompson and the others have published, um, I think they're calling it the 15 commandments um, or 15 measures, which the eight players are saying um, must be addressed. And um, one of them, so number two, is that they call for regulated training to be introduced, which limits contact in rugby to a certain number of sessions per year. Um, and of course, that reducing the amount of contact um, in training is um, precisely what the NFL did over in America back in 2011. So that was a specific you know, measure that they brought in to try and combat uh, the risk. That's really interesting. And particularly interesting, I suppose, that it's already been done in the NFL, because if the NFL instituted it in 2011, then presumably cases that might come after 2011, you can always point to the NFL and say, well, there was already knowledge in the in a related sport that had a similar problem. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I mean, I don't know huge amount about American football, but I mean, they they literally wear armor and they sort of like <laughs> tackle with their head, don't they? I mean, it's like a it is an incredibly physical game, um, uh, and it and as and as a result, the figures of CTE in American football players are are, are stark. Um, but no, I agree. I mean, in much the same way that lots of litigation, like we look across the pond to see what's happening there. And then it happens in the UK <laughs> some, some time after. Um, yes, I think that, that you know, it, it, we may see UK sports um, adopting similar approaches, um, re-contact re um, time, uh, contact in, in sport. And I hope that these sports can find a way to retain like the integrity of the sport and the enjoyment that everyone gets out of it and, and um, play it in a, safe, in a safer way. So I had another question actually about CTE, which I think stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, we've talked a little bit around um, concussions and dementia, but it, I think it might be worth kind of spelling out for people what are the long-term effects for people like Steve Thompson? What are they actually going through? Because for somebody like Steve Thompson, who is a huge rugby star, I think he had 33 caps for England, um, for him to sue um, these people is a huge step. And I'm sure he wouldn't be taking that if, if it wasn't incredibly serious for him and his families. What is the sort of future that he's facing? I think it's a really good question, actually. And... Um I guess I don't know for him personally, but in very broad terms, um, the symptoms affect the functioning of the brain and eventually lead to dementia. So typical symptoms of CTE include short-term memory loss. So uh, examples of people asking the same question several times, having difficulty remembering names or phone numbers. 
reports of changes in mood, so frequent mood springs, uh, swings, depression, feeling anxious, frustrated, agitated, and so on. Um, increased confusion, disorientation, getting lost, wandering uh, around, not knowing what the time of day is. And a difficulty thinking is another common symptom. So such as finding it hard to make a decision, to be able to weigh up information, to be able to decide what to do. Um, as people's condition progress, they report further symptoms such as slurred speech, uh, significant memory problems, uh, Parkinson, so the typical symptoms of Parkinson's disease, so tremors, slow movement, muscle stiffness, and a difficulty eating or swallowing, um, although that's quite rare. So really significant symptoms which are going to be affecting uh, pretty much every area of life from movement to thought. I mean, those, are, those are hugely concerning symptoms um, which could completely stop someone's ability to function in society, hold down a job, um, interfere hugely with their relationships and their lives. Um, and, and from what you've said, it sounds to me like uh, once you have it, it can degenerate further. Is, is that right, that the, it's a degenerative disease? Disorder. Yes, it's a progressive disease. And as it stands at the moment, there are only supportive treatments available. There's nothing curative. Um, and I think what's particularly stark um, is obviously a lot of the individuals we're talking about are in their 40s. Um, so they've got young families, as Katie was saying, and so on. And so exactly as you say, in terms of affecting relationships with um, personal relationships, children, work, this is uh, a prime time of life that these individuals are reporting these concerns and uh, and a future looking forward that there isn't currently a cure. Mm. And one thing I think that struck many people from the headlines around the test case was, um, was Steve Thompson said that he can't remember winning the World Cup in 2000. So um, not only, yeah, does this disease rob people of, um, you know, lots of their cognitive function, but also their memories. And in the context of what we're talking about with these elite athletes um, taking these huge hits for the in you know, entertainment, for want of a better word, mm. of all the people that tune in to watch them. Um, and they then, they, you know, can't remember what happened. Um, so, yeah, these, they can, you know, it's a, it's a cruel condition. Katie and I have been doing a lot of webinars on this topic. And notoriously, when you start the webinar, the host says to us, we are terrified about what you're about to tell us because people want to play the sports. Um, these are important sports with a lot of history. People are very worried about the risk, worried about the statistics and so on. And I think that's one of the real challenges of where we are at the moment is about how you balance um, not losing too much in terms of the supports or the benefits to support for health generally, um, for mental health as well, and so on, against quite an unclear picture of risk, because, you know, we're focusing very specifically on one particular um, risk factor for dementia. But there are so many risk factors for somebody for dementia, their age, their genetics, their lifestyle factors like smoking or uh, high blood pressure, um, alcohol consumption, obesity, which obviously sport in of itself helps to lower that risk. So I think it's such a complicated uh, situation where it is really important as ever to try and balance what we know without scaremongering, but at the same time responsibly manage 
managing risk, recognising those wider benefits of sport generally um, and how we don't lose those uh, through uh, unnecessary fear of risk. Thank you so much, Sophie and Katie, for coming on today and sharing your knowledge with us. It's it's an area I didn't know anything about before I started preparing for this. And I'm honestly quite shocked at the scale of it. So thank you very much for giving some more detail and flesh on the bones of it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. The Cross-Examination thank you for listening if you enjoyed the episode then please do like and subscribe and we would love to hear any feedback or episode ideas that you have the hearing the cross-examination a legal podcast from thomson reuters to find out more go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts